Good morning, everyone. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to be reading from two passages today. The first is from Isaiah, and the second is from Matthew. So Isaiah 7, beginning with verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And over to Matthew. Matthew 1, beginning with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus, the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Cole Fakes. I'm the pastor here and one of the elders. And I just love this time of year, this weekend. This is our first weekend we ever came to Carl Landing was Christmas tree weekend. It just encapsulates so much of what we love about this community. And uh, you'll notice if you've been here in the past few weeks that we had a little decorating party this week. And I just want to thank the Connors, the McKenzies, the Smetanskys, and everybody who came and made this place look so beautiful. It gets our hearts ready to celebrate the coming of a Savior. This time of year, Laura and I often talk about an experience that happened to us a few years ago. After Christmas, we had gotten some gift cards, and so we went to Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City to spend these gift cards as fast as we could. And we're in this store, and I'm checking out at the register with trying to buy a shirt, and all of a sudden, in the background, we hear, bang, 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 bang. And shots had been fired in the mall. And you can tell a lot about somebody when they're under fire. Laura dove behind the cash register with the person checking us out, as anybody would. I don't know what I was doing, but I was running towards the door of the place. I don't know if I thought I was going to tackle this guy and bring him to the ground, get my name in the paper, or if I was just running to the parking lot. I, I don't know what was happening. The, the lady behind the cash register, though, goes, not again. 
And she goes, everybody to the back. So everybody runs to the back, and we're in this little mechanical room with all these video screens up. There's eight of us and a baby in there in a space, you know, about this big, and we're just waiting. And everybody's talking to loved ones, and everybody's kind of worried about what's happening. I'm live-tweeting the thing. I'm like, shots fired at Penn Square Mall, hashtag KOFOR, Channel 4, and it gets retweeted all over the place, and people are asking us what's going on, and we're in there for two and a half hours while they check the mall and get everybody out of there. So finally, the police come in, and they're going to escort us out of the mall. And we get out, and we start to walk over towards the exit, and we're with the manager. I said, hey, about that shirt, can I still get that shirt? And the police officer is like, you have got to be kidding me. So we go over there with a police escort, because I didn't know if the gift card had been scanned or not. See, that's the thing. It's, we, were right, we were right in the middle of the transaction. I just wanted to make sure if it had been scanned that I got the shirt. Actually, I'm wearing the shirt today, actually. So, I mean, it's a good shirt. It's probably not worth getting shot at over, but it's a good shirt. And I get the shirt, bag it up. I mean, this, was, you, this lady who's folding the shirt, the amount of eye rolls that we're getting as she puts it in the little box, we get out to the car, and Laura was like, what, what was that? What, what were you doing in there? And I was like, what, what do you mean? She's like, I mean, the buying the shirt thing was just so you. I, I expected that. She's like, where were you going when the shots were fired? And I was like, I honestly don't know. I think the valiant side of me thinks I was running towards the sound of the guns, but I don't know what I was doing. I just reacted. And she's like, well, whatever you were doing, why weren't you thinking about me? Why, why weren't you protecting me? And I was like, that is such a great point. That it had not occurred to me, but I can see your angle on this. This, this is such a good thing. I really should have thought of that. We weren't married at the point. Uh, and I thought about it later. I was like, you know what? I really should think about that because to be a good husband, that's kind of the definition. <laughs> Thinking of her before myself. And she said something along the lines of, you really need to think about your priorities. <laughs> which was true. Which was true. The difficult times you're in will reveal your priorities. There's no way around it. Because once you get to the point where you're just acting, your values begin to come through. And what Laura was telling me in that moment, which all of us have heard it somewhere or another in our life, is you reacted in such a way. You made a decision that revealed. You showed your colors in such a way that you need a transformation in your heart. You need different priorities. You need something that is the main thing to become the main thing in your life. And over the course of getting married and being a husband, I've Hope, hopefully, we haven't been shot at since, but if we do, I hope that it will reveal that my heart has changed to be more selfless and more loving and laying my own life down because that's the person I want to be, but that's not always the person that I actually am in real life. And this morning, in our story of Joseph, what I want you to see is how transformation of the heart really happens. See, what we're talking about this morning is the most powerful, transformative force in the universe. In fact, I think you could almost argue that all meaningful change in our life and in the world comes from this one single source, the love of God. The most powerful force in the universe is God's 
love for you. And in the story of Joseph, who's one of those characters that often gets overlooked in the Christmas story, and there's good reason for that. He's not the most important person in the Christmas story. The most important person in this part of the Christmas story is Mary. <laughs> and she is an amazing character who we've talked about. But this morning, I want to I go to the overlooked character of Joseph. And here's why. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he does something that none of the other gospel writers do in the same way. He introduces us, after this long genealogy, to the character Joseph. And what Matthew does, if you've read Matthew's gospel, what he does is he takes characters and he likes to talk about how their lives change. If you look at and you just trace the characters in Matthew, Matthew loves to tell stories of transformation. Characters who were unsure at the beginning and who then went all in for Christ. Characters who didn't know God and then had encounters that opened their eyes and they saw God's love for them. They saw his son Jesus and they began to live their life for him. Matthew uses exemplars in his gospel to show us what it looks like in real life to be changed. And the first exemplar in the gospel of Matthew is Joseph. The first character he holds up and says, be like this guy, is Joseph. So in the opening part of this gospel, we're going to see four steps to the change that happens in Joseph's life. And what I want you to take away this morning is these four steps, these four phases that Joseph goes through are the ingredients of all heart change. Every time God changes us to be more like him, to be more loving, to be more selfless, to be more on mission, he walks us through similar steps to what Joseph went through. Now, the first one is he prepared Joseph ahead of time. He prepared Joseph ahead of time. See, oftentimes in our lives, God is working on our story before we are, before we know it. See, God has a long enough view that he knows the things that are, you're going to go through. He knows the situations you're going to find yourself in. And he begins almost like packing a survival pack, like a backpack that you'll need when you get into that circumstance. It's almost like God knows you so well inside and out that he will take you through things that you need to give you the tools that you're going to want to have when you get into a situation later. And that's what he's been doing with Joseph. What we learn about Joseph is he is a righteous man. He is a righteous guy. He does the right thing. He is devoted to God. He is loving to Mary. We know that he is betrothed to Mary, which is not a word that we use, and it requires a little bit of explanation to understand just how transformative this experience is for Joseph. To be betrothed in the ancient world is more than just to be engaged in our culture. So to be betrothed in the ancient world is you have gotten engaged, but in the sight of the law and in sight of other people, you are married, right? So we, we almost do like two little covenants. There's the engagement, which is a promise, but then you get married, which is like a bigger, more full commitment. For them, it was one promise. Betrothal was just the beginning part of being married. So in the eyes of everyone, they were as committed as if they were already married. But here's the kicker. When you were betrothed in the ancient world, what you did was you, your families got together, you got basically married, you were betrothed, and then the husband would go and prepare a place for his wife. 
It was an act of selfless love to make a place ready for his wife. And when he was done, he would go and get her, and she would come, and then they would have a ceremony that they would be together. So Joseph is in this preparation stage of his life. He is thinking about Mary. He's thinking about their life together. He's thinking about how he wants to build a home, probably onto his parents' house, as they did in those days, to welcome her back. And he was probably thinking every day of the future moment when he would finish, he would go to Mary's father, to their household, and he would bring her back to be with him forever. That's betrothal in the ancient world. And we know that Joseph and Mary are betrothed. They are not living together yet. They have not come together, the text says, but that is imminent. And because we know that Joseph is a righteous man, we know that he is doing the process right. He's doing it the way that it's supposed to be done. You know, other things we know about Joseph is that he was a carpenter. He was a tradesman of some kind. Now, people debate about what this word really means. It's the word tecton. It's where we get the word technology. So he is a craftsman of some kind, maybe a stonemason, maybe a carpenter. But he does such a good job, and he is such a righteous man. He knows the law so well that actually some of the Jews that were commenting later on this passage think that maybe this is like a slang term. This, this builder is a slang term for somebody who is educated in the law, somebody who has been trained, almost like a rabbi who understands the law of God. And the reason is because later when Joseph is confronted with this difficult situation, he brings into his mind, what has God already said about this? See, Joseph was the kind of guy who wasn't just right on the outside, he was right on the inside. His heart was devoted to God. Joseph had the highest character, the highest reputation, the highest honor in a culture where honor really was the end-all, be-all. Now, we, we tend to measure people by things or profession or net worth or accomplishment, but in the ancient world, you were your honor, your word, your reputation. What people thought about your character mattered more than anything else, and what we know from this passage is Joseph, for his whole life, had built up an honorable character with people on the outside. See, God had used Joseph's story. He had used everything that had come before to prepare him for when probably the worst day of his life came. See, the second thing is, he was prepared ahead of time, but he was also called by God to be who he truly was. When Joseph learns that Mary has been found with child, his whole world came crashing down. Like, I don't think we get it today because our social mores and theirs are very different. This was the end of his life. This was the end of his reputation, not just of Mary's. This was the end of Joseph's reputation. He had linked himself. He had betrothed himself to someone who had done something that was so taboo that she would never again be considered honorable in their culture. See, what Joseph had to go through here was not just the death of his own honor, but the death of a dream. Imagine spending your day every day preparing for something that in a moment just immediately comes crashing down. Joseph is thinking about these things. He's pondering what to do. 
And all of a sudden, you see the angel appear, and, it, and the angel says, Joseph, son of David. This is, if you read the Bible, you get kind of these Bible lenses, you're like, oh, son of David. But then you snap out of it. People don't say this in the real world. Son of David is such a random thing to say. Because in this moment, saying son of David is referring back to the greatest king, other than Moses, the greatest figure in the history of Israel. This would be like someone saying, son of George Washington, or son of Abraham Lincoln, invoking the greatest of your history and saying, you are just like them. You know, to Joseph, this had to be such a head fake, because what this angel is saying, you are part of a line that is the best of what God has done in Israel. You are royalty in this line. You are high and exalted. And Joseph is thinking, I am the lowest of the low. Like, I wonder sometimes if Joseph ever struggled with the fact that he had not lived up to what the expectations and hopes were for his life. Both because he was from the line of David, but also because he was named after one of the major heroes of the faith. He's named after Joseph, the patriarch, who goes to Egypt. He comes through a really difficult time in his life. He goes to Egypt, and he ends up being a savior of his people in Egypt. He saves them from famine and from extermination, and he provides a covering for his brothers. In fact, that's what his name means. The whole family of names mean God saving. And so not only is he from the line of David, and he's not a king, he's a carpenter, not only is he named after Joseph, and he hasn't really been a savior, he feels like a ruiner. And so it's in that moment that God comes to him and he says, Joseph, son of David. See, God has a way of doing this, calling you things that you might not be yet, but God knows are true about you. My, one of my mentors, actually my advisor, when I was doing my doctorate, is named Timothy Paul Jones. And he was telling me a story. He got a call. He was just out of his schooling. He was actually a youth pastor in Oklahoma at the time. And he gets a call, and they says, is this, is this Timothy Jones? And he says, yes. They said, we have been looking everywhere for you. This is pre-internet. And so they have been looking for his address, his phone number. They've been trying to find him. And they said, we've got, uh, we've got a contract for a book project ready for you. Are you do you want to go through with it? And he's like, Sure. He's written one book at this point. It's not a bestseller. Nobody's probably heard of it. And he's like, somebody has read it and loves it. And the more they talk, the better this gets. They're like, we've got your advance ready. It's in the mail. And sure enough, when the advance came, they paid off their student debt. They bought a car. I mean, they put some money aside for college. It was a huge advance for a book. They had the project all lined out. They had found the best editor in Christian publishing. Max Lucado's editor, who was going to work with him on this book project. I mean, things could not get better. They mail him the contract, he signs it, they mail it back in, and he has his first phone call with the editor. This person that called him was a rep of the publisher, but he has this phone call with his editor. And about 30 seconds into the phone call, the editor's like, we love your work at Christianity Today, we've loved your best-selling books, we are so excited to get to work with you. He doesn't say anything in the first call. He just goes with it, just rolls with it. 
and talks about how excited he is. But, but later, <laughs> he's thinking to himself, I probably, since I'm writing a Christian book on prayer, should go to them and tell them, I think there's been a mistake. But before he does that, he goes to Mardell. And he goes over to the book section, and he looks for Jones, Jones, Jones. And he finds Timothy Jones at Mardell. And there is a shelf of books by Timothy Jones. It's just not him. It's a different Timothy Jones. He's a bestseller. He's the former editor of Christianity Today. He's written numerous books. He speaks around the world. He is well-known. He calls and confesses to the editor, I'm not that Timothy Jones. I'm a different Timothy Jones. To her credit, she says, we already have a signed contract. The advance has already been spent. We want you to write this book. So he does. <laughs> he spends a year and a half writing this book, sends it to them. They publish it. They promo it. They do everything for it. And now he's written dozens of books. It's, it's funny... The first time I heard that, I was like, I don't know who this is worse on, honestly. The publisher, you, I don't, I don't know. But the publisher didn't know it, but there was something inside of him that was waiting to be awakened, waiting for a long career, actually now, 30 years of writing books and teaching and going into academia, and it just started with one mistaken phone call. But the thing is, God loves to do the same thing, but God is not mistaken, it's not a coincidence. When, when God calls and he says, son of David, he's not thinking about somebody else. When God looks into your life and he says, you are my son, my daughter. I am proud of you. I love you. I am sending my spirit for you to walk in the paths I've laid out for you. It's never mistaken, but most of the time, it's earlier than we recognize. So God does this all through Scripture. Gideon, for example, in Judges chapter 6, he is a coward. He's threshing wheat in a wine press, which if you're an ancient person, you realize how silly this is. To thresh wheat, you need to be on a high, windy place so that you can throw it up and the, and the chaff will fall away. But he's in a wine press down in the ground, the most futile thing you could do. And God comes and he says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. See, Gideon didn't know it at the time. Nobody knew it at the time. But he was a mighty man of valor. And it took God speaking into his life to bring that out. See, the same thing happens with Mary. Mary is a teenage girl from a nothing town. Nobody's ever heard of her. And if God had not chosen for her to have Jesus, no one would ever have heard of her. And he says, greetings, highly favored one. Greetings, highly favored one. Maybe the best example is Jesus when he enters into his public ministry and he's baptized. The skies split open and, and God says down, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Think about this for a moment. In your dark moments, in your crisis times, in the moments like Joseph where you feel like everything you've just worked for has the bottom has fallen out, what does God call you? What does he say about you? What's true about you in God's eyes that hasn't come to fruition in your life yet, but God has in the future for you? See, the Bible is full of things that God calls us that we are not yet, but we will be. 
We went through the book of Ephesians uh, this fall, and that book is just full of things that he calls us alive, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, a royal heir of the fortune of God, an inheritor of all the promises that are in Jesus, someone who has been blessed in every way with spiritual blessings, someone who has a road paved out for them to walk in that God himself has laid out, someone, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will take you by the hand. When the waters come up over you, when the fire gets too hot for you, I will be with you. I will never forsake you. God calls those things into your life before they've ever come to be. And for Joseph, what he needed was for God to say, remember your name? Remember your line? Remember who you are? Remember what I've done in you? The most amazing moments with God are those moments where God begins to speak the truth to you. And that's the way we get changed. Now, the third thing is a little phrase in this passage I don't want you to miss. Look at verse 20. So he finds out that Mary is with child. And it says in verse 20, as he considered these things, as he considered these things, he's praying. He's going to scripture. He's thinking. He's getting wise counsel. He's contemplating these things. And then Matthew says, behold. As he was considering these things, Behold. Behold is not a word we typically use now. If you say behold, you will get a laugh in real life. But for Matthew, the word behold is used 60 times in the gospel, and it always means God is about to do something surprising. Every time you see it, it's like a clue to the reader. Wait till you see this. Behold. As Joseph is considering these things, as he's praying, the great reversal in his story takes place. As he is going to God, behold, God comes to him. God says, it's me you've been looking for. I'm the one who's working here. I have a plan for you. I have made you for this moment, Joseph. As he's considering these things, God reveals the plan. This is the moment of clarity for Joseph. And I think any time there's a significant transformation in your life, what the love of God does is it brings us what has happened before, what God is doing in the moment, to a vision of clarity. And here's what it is. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." The love of God floods into Joseph's life, and all of his vision and priorities begin to change. Think about the before situation for Joseph. Here's what he's up against. Lose your reputation, lose your social standing, raise somebody else's child, your wife that you have not been with is pregnant, and you don't know what to do about it. Now, what was available to Joseph was under the law, as he knew, he could just divorce her. He could just get out of the situation. He could throw all the blame on Mary and say, I didn't have anything to do with this, and I am now cutting myself off. That was perfectly available to Joseph. In fact, in some circles, this is what Joseph should have done. It's not what he was required to do by the law, but it was available to him with no blowback. It's not like anybody was ever going to say, yeah, you did what you could, but was it what you should do? Everybody in his life was probably saying, it's clear what you should do. 
Detach yourself from Mary. Get away from her. This is the rest of your life we're talking about. So Joseph is thinking about these things, and God comes in and slowly changes his perspective from this is all about what's going to happen to you, Joseph, to I have something for you to do, Joseph. I want you to take Mary. I want you to raise Jesus, the Savior of the world. I want you to teach him. I want you to have him in your home. I want you to raise him. I want you to protect him. I want you to be a part of the greatest story that's ever going to be told. Not you as the son of David, but your son as the son of David is going to fulfill all the promises that I have ever given to your people. Is that something that you want to be a part of? Think about Joseph's decision matrix on this. Before, reputation is bad. He's got something, somebody else's child. He's probably not going to be able to continue in the same social circles. And afterwards, he's thinking, I get to be a part of the greatest story. The thing that we've been waiting for from the Isaiah passage 700 years before that is now coming true in my family, and all I have to do is lose my reputation. That's transformation. When you start to see things through the lens of God's priority, when you start to see things through God's own love, you begin to do silly things like, I can raise the Son of God, and all I have to do is have people think less of me? That's an easy decision for somebody who has been captivated by the love of God. The passage that has been on my heart this week as I've been thinking about this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul says, the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all. Jesus died for all so that those who live in him will no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. Here's the test of transformation. One person died for all. Every single one of us in here who trusts in Christ got there the same way. Jesus died for you. And all of us finish the same way. Now, it looks different in each one of our lives, but it's a very simple pattern. The love of God comes into your life. You see what God has done for you. The definition of love. Jesus laid down his life for you when you were unworthy of it. And that transforms you in such a way that you say like Paul, okay, I'm done living for me. Because what the love of God does is it makes you imitate it. You see God, you're compelled by what he's done, and you want to start doing the same thing. So Paul says, we can't help it. We're compelled. This word is so fascinating. It means you are constrained by something. It means like you are so wrapped up and you are so surrounded that you only have one way to move. The love of Christ surrounds us. It compels us. It constrains us. The love of Christ directs us in one direction, to stop living for ourselves and start living for others. That's the transformation that happened in Joseph. And like I said, this is the transformation that happens to any person who really encounters the love of God. How can I start doing this for other people? How can I start laying my life down for what God has called me to do? How, how can I take what I've been given and use it to further the love of Christ? See, we had something really tragic happen, not in our church, but adjacently this week in our community. And some people that are tied into our community, and we had a group of people in our church that really wanted to do something about it. Someone had died, 
And there were no resources. There was no nothing that these people could do. They were just mourning. And so one of the great joys of getting to be the pastor is I get looped into this and get to be the one that gets to go talk to these people. And so I talked to them, and, and the more we talked about it, the more it became clear. The funeral arrangements have been made. It has been booked. But that's it. And so as I talked to them, I said, what can we do for you? We have people that really want to help. What can we do? They said, well, we haven't bought any flowers. We don't have any flowers for the funeral. And so I said, let's, let's get flowers. So we meet this week. We go to the Ufala flower shop, and it's the death of a child. It's the most tragic thing. And we're standing there in the flower shop. I've never met these people in my life. And they just keep saying, why are you doing this? Why would you guys intervene? We don't even know you. And I just said, you know, the thing about it is, it's, it's, it's not that we're great people. It's that we have been transformed by a love that is so compelling that we want other people to know it. And I said, they said, well, we'll work on paying you back. I said, you can't pay us back. You can never pay us back because we've been loved this way. We want to love you this way. And it was like, even after we left, they texted me. They're like, we'll pay you back. I said, you can't pay us back. That just defeats the whole purpose of it. What these people want to do is they want to show you the kind of love that they've experienced. And it's such a tiny thing. I just kept driving around like, this is such a small thing. But for them, it was a picture of people who have no reason to be engaged with them, no reason to love them, no reason to know their name, no reason to get involved in this situation other than the fact that they know what it's like to be loved by someone you could never repay, by someone you could never give back to. And I get what Paul's saying in this passage. It's not like we even really have a choice. The love of Christ compels us that where we can lay down our lives for someone, we are going to be there because that's what God did for us. The love of God floods into your life, and like Joseph, all of a sudden you think, how can I be like that? How can I be like my Savior? But the fourth thing, and this is the sweetest part of the story, God gives him an opportunity to act. This is not ethereal. This is not something that just stops in Joseph's quiet time. This is not something where it's like, I would love to be that kind of person. It's where God says, if you want to be that kind of person, do this. Go. Take Mary. Take care of her. Think about her. Bring her into your home. Raise this child. Lay your life down. Be about the things that I am about. This is what happens in every transformation. God doesn't just change you in theory. He gives you the opportunity to live it out. He will give you, if you pray, if you are thinking about God's love for you, if you have become a Christian, if you are following him, God is going to give you opportunities to live that out and respond. In fact, he already has opportunities picked out for you in advance that you can step into and show his love to other people. God always provides opportunities to obey. Now, we sometimes think the word obey is kind of a taboo word, but I always go back to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not go tell everybody about the love of Jesus, let them just make up their minds and do whatever they want after that. It's go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. The life of a Christian is a life of obedience. And because of that, God is always giving us opportunities to obey him. 
to step in, to be loving, to be patient, to be gracious, to be Christ-like for other people. You know, the, the amazing thing about this transformation for Joseph is not that overnight Joseph became a much better guy. That's how we think of transformation. Like, all of a sudden, Joseph had this crazy experience, and now he's a really good guy. Joseph stayed the same guy. The only thing that changed was, does he trust God and obey, or does he not? He's still righteous. He is still in a difficult situation. Nothing has changed other than he now has the chance to say, I'm going to trust God and obey him. You know what's amazing about this story is Joseph, who he was named for in Egypt, became a prefiguring. He became like a foreshadowing, a foretelling of what Jesus would do. See, Joseph is one of those characters that shows in his own life what God has been up to for all of history, calling his people to be a provision and to be a savior in some sense physically of his brothers. And Joseph, Jesus' dad, gets to live up to that by saying, all I have to do is lay down my life and the Christ child is being born in our home. See, he models for us, the word of this week in Advent is love. And there is not a more confusing word in our culture than love. The amount of definitions that we have to juggle every day with the word love is mind-blowing. But Joseph becomes a model of the love of God. I almost wonder if this is why Matthew chose to tell his story first, because you couldn't get a better picture of what his son would do, what true love looks like, laying his life down for his enemies. God used him to live out his love, Joseph did, to live out his love, and he will do the same for you. In fact, he's already doing it. He's preparing you. He's leading you. He's calling you by name. He is giving you that moment of clarity, and then he is giving you an opportunity to act. See, this is where a sermon like this doesn't even need a bullet point application because you probably already know what God is calling you to. You just have to decide, will I obey? Will I walk by the Spirit? Will I use God's priorities in my life? Will I display the love of God to the people around me? Will I understand that God has given me everything I need to be his witness to these people? I wonder if you asked Joseph the day before he found out Mary was pregnant, what do you think your life's going to look like? What he would say? I wonder what he aspired to. I wonder what he counted his history to. But I know afterwards, if you ask Joseph, what, what's God's story for your life? He would say, it's all the love of God. The transforming, comforting, powerful, self-sacrificing love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that as we stand here preparing for Christmas, or what we're celebrating is an even bigger story than just Joseph's, an even bigger story than just ours, an even bigger story than we've ever been able to tell in human words. It's a story that you're telling through your son of reuniting all people and reconciling all people together. I think Paul says the love of Christ compels us because anybody that's in Christ is a new creation, a new story a new set of endings. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God. Only God could do this. Reconciling the world to himself. So we are your ambassadors, God. We are making your appeal to real life people through our lives. 
Father, help us this morning as we celebrate Christmas to understand the role we get to play in your story. Father, help us to lay down our lives for others, to say no to sin and disobedience in our life because we want to obey. We want to walk in your ways, Lord. Father, with your spirit, just as your spirit inspired the birth of Christ and your word and came and turned Mary and Joseph's hearts towards you, turn our hearts towards you now. Help us to walk in the ways that you've planned for us. Give us the courage to obey you, Lord. In your son's name we pray.